Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because I've just gotten a greater appreciation for a plant that's been in my life for a very long time. I shouldn't say this species in particular, but overall, the genus. Today, we're going to be talking about Salvinia, a strange and interesting group of floating aquatic ferns. In particular, we're talking about one that's become quite an invasive species across the globe. And joining us to talk about this is Stacy Holt Jr. Stacy is fascinated by the intersection of genomics, evolution, and invasive species biology. And he's created a bridge between the theoretical world of science and the applied world of science, which is a rare trait in any scientist. And as you're going to hear, that's all driven by passion and a desire to understand the world around him. But I don't want to steal any of his thunder. This is an amazing group of plants really worth studying. And Stacy is carving off a wonderful chunk of science with these ferns. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Stacy Holt Jr. I hope you enjoy. All right, Stacy Holt Jr., it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to pick your brain tonight. But first, how about we start with an introduction? Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, of course. So uh, thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited to be here. As you said, my name is Stacy Holt Jr., and I would describe myself as a young botanist and plant biologist from Kansas that just really has a love for plants. Um, I'm part of an awesome plant systematics lab at Wichita State here in Kansas currently. And we work on ferns, flowering plants, and invasive species. So I really have a lot of research interests, which can be good and bad for me at times. <laughs> Keep, keeps me a little spread out. But um, currently, my research is focused on an invasive aquatic fern species within the genus Salvinia. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you're in good company. So welcome. And before we jump into that, though, I'm curious what got you interested in plants in particular? I mean, were you a nature kid growing up and, and was it something that like you saw as a child or did you kind of find that as you're going through education or career or something like that? Yeah, so I really think it's been quite a build up to the enthusiasm that I have now. Um, my love for plants probably started my first semester of college where plant bio is the first section of bio one typically. Nice. And I think from there, I found myself in the library just reading about plants in general, um, which led me to read about plants where I'm from here in Kansas and eventually uh, a little bit of Native American history and how they interact with plants <laughs> as well as the land. So that was interesting. But then fast forward a bit, and this may be so typical, but uh, <laughs> my second, second year in college, I took an ecology course as well as a plant systematics class. And I think that was my real first introduction to plant science. Nice. So it was kind of like taking that in initial interest of like the biology of plants and, and sort of the ethnobotany side of things and then seeing how that expands into this world of really focusing on plants within the ecosystems itself. I mean, that's one thing it's hard to communicate too is like the, the differences between botany and ecology. They inform each other. I think all good ecologists should have a botany background, but when you realize what plants are doing in the environment and how they're influencing everything from the microbes up to the human societies, it is, you're preaching to the choir, I guess, in a big way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just really fascinating. There's so many different routes you can go with plants. And I think one of the questions that just kept occurring is, well, what are you going to do with your degree when you get done? And, mm. and I always thought, well, plants are all over the world. So that's <laughs> definitely something I could take anywhere and, and take with me. Yeah, yeah. Job security. And the other thing, too, is it's just like an appreciation of the world. I feel like I don't know if I'm I'm speaking out a, a turn here, but like 
now that I love plants, you could put me anywhere and I will find something to focus my attention on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that's really the great thing. And sometimes it can be a bit of a distraction, but you can always <laughs> find something that you enjoy and you just realize how much plants are kind of influencing and interacting with everything we do, even though uh, it might not be something that most people notice every day. Nice. Yeah. And so thinking about your career trajectory and, and trying to focus that energy and enthusiasm for plants, I mean, what made you kind of go the route that you're on now? I mean, how did you pick from the wide swath of possibilities to, to start to focus? I really think it's uh, it's really been some mentors that I've had. Probably I, I really was just willing to take any class about plants when I first entered <laughs> college. I was just ready to get that information. But I think after a little bit of guidance and just talking to some mentors about what they enjoy about plants and, and their research has kind of led me down the path I'm on now, definitely being in the lab that I'm in currently with uh, Dr. James Beck. Uh, he has been described to me as a fern fanatic, <laughs> and, and that's a, a really just great group of people. And being around people who love ferns, they are readily able to convince you that you should love ferns as well. <laughs> Yeah, they are an intoxicating group of people to be around. And and it really kind of blows the lid off of just the diversity of ferns on this planet. I think growing up, we have an image of ferns in our head and most colloquial sort of circles, people think of like the feathery fronds. But right. the fern world is so wild and it's doing so many strange and unique things. It's It's such a cool corner to find yourself in. Yeah, I agree. And I think with that being said, it's even more surprising that it's kind of a this might be a, a, a wrong term, but an understudied area in plants. And so there's been a lot of focus on, on angiosperm research and mm. flowering plants because those are so attractive. But uh, I think the field of kind of research into ferns is continually growing, which is a good thing. That's actually a really interesting perspective to hear from someone in the thick of it, right? Because, you know, again, a lot of us plant interested or not can recognize a fern, but I'm always amazed at sort of the disproportionate attentions within the larger plant kingdom. And it's amazing to think ferns have been here for so long and yet we're focused most of our attention and funding on just like the tail end of the plant story as it relates to today. Yeah. And I, um, one, one book that kind of guided me in my journey to ferns was a, a natural history of ferns and it just, uh, mm. by Robin C. Moran. And it kind of, kind of highlights just the fern life cycle and it tells you simple but really really good information to know about ferns and then how they've kind of spread to come all around the world and and high diversity and unique places and just things like that awesome that's a great rec i'm gonna have to write that down as i'm editing this to make sure i go and put it on my wish list <laughs> But, you know, speaking of the breadth and diversity of ferns, you mentioned that your current work has you focusing on a specific genus, Salvinia. And mm -hmm. it was one of those plants that I was really into aquariums growing up. So I knew about it, but I knew nothing about it, right? I could identify it, pick it out of a lineup and had it growing in some of my tanks. But I will wow. never forget the, the moment my jaw hit the ground learning that this weird floating aquatic plant was a fern. I had no idea ferns took to the water. And that was my first introduction to it. Yeah, and I think you just said it really, a floating aquatic fern, I don't think is, is what most people picture when you bring up <laughs> ferns, when you talk about them. And they certainly, they have a different look than what we think of when we <laughs> picture a fern, I would say. Um, but they do exist, and they're, they're just really cool. But like you said, all fern diversity is really kind of interesting. So Nice. And so when you are thinking about your interest in ferns and, and their life cycle and all the ways you can tackle that, 
I mean, what was the impetus to dive into Salvinia of all genera? Yeah, I think um, the dive into Salvinia was really looking at, well, first, it's it's already been studied a little bit more than other fern groups mm. because it's been found to have a, a much smaller genome in comparison to other ferns. Mm. So it's more, I would say, easily accessible in terms of genomic and, and genetic work. Um, but also it has a few invasive species within within mm. this genus. And so that's the primary focus of my research, really, the kind of the invasive part. Awesome. And of course, you do some molecular work on top of that. But let's sort of give a broad brushstroke, because again, this will be very new to a lot of listeners. Roughly speaking, like what is Salvinia? Can you describe them to some extent and, and what their lifestyle is compared to what we would consider a more traditional forest floor type fern? Yeah, for sure. So uh, there, there's a lot of points to bring up here, and I, I hope I don't miss any, but I, <laughs> no I'm worries. sure. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Salvinia is composed of approximately uh, 12 species hmm. recognized worldwide. It's a tropical genus, and so nine of the species actually occur in Brazil, and 10 of them are native to South America. Wow. Uh, there's two old world species, but actually I want to back out a little bit sure. to the order of Salviniales, and this is the Heterosporous ferns. And so this is kind of one trait that's, yeah, that's unique to this group and that most ferns reproduce via spores, um, but they make one type of spore and it's uh, homosporous ferns. But this group is a little different in that way. And so they make two types of spores, a megaspore and a microspore. And that's just one unique kind of apomorphy that unites this order. Now, if we zoom into the genus Salvinia, we have some other apomorphies that these plants have in common. One being uh, the hair systems that these plants have. Mm. So I'll kind of describe one of these plants. It's a, it has a floating stem or rhizome that's just below the water surface, and it produces a whorl of three leaves at each node. And so the two emergent leaves that are above the water that you see floating, if you would see this plant, um, are green and can vary in shape. And so they're either ovate, obovate, or, or more simply, they're usually just round. Hmm. And their growth stages can vary, so they can look a little different depending on when you see them. But then the third leaf is actually highly modified, as a lot of plant structures are, <laughs> uh, a highly modified leaf that floats below the water surface and looks or resembles a root for this plant. What? Now, these plants don't have roots. Uh, yeah, but, but this highly modified leaf is, is below the water surface. And these plants can get anywhere from just a few in a, in a small, maybe handful of group or covering an entire fresh body of water. Wow. That just to think about, you know, you're in an aquarium store, you're looking at a, a tank full of salvinia, and you see these beautiful root like structures hanging down. Uh, yep. Very easy to fall into the assumption that those are functional <laughs> root, but that's a modified leaf. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've learned almost, you know, it's, it's fun to be surprised in plants, but when you hear something as a modified leaf, you're almost like, oh yeah, that's, that's their strategy. So, huh. That's absolutely wild. And then the hair-like structures on the leaves themselves, I have delighted myself to no end being bored at home, just dropping <laughs> drops of water onto the leaves and watching them slide off like water off a duck's back. It's the same sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I really love that you brought that up. And that's a really cool thing about these plants. And so on the abaxial or the bottom side of these leaves, they have what are called hair systems. And so there's an initial kind of small projection out of the leaf surface, which is referred to as a papillae. And then on top of these is a hair system. And so this is actually how you can differentiate between species within this genus. 
Hmm. is by looking at these hairs, you got to get out that hand lens. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And, and so some of these can be open, like if you're reaching up to catch a baseball with your hand spread, and some of them can be closed and resemble kind of an egg beater shape hmm. almost on top of these leaves. But they're very, very small hairs or hair systems. And the part that you mentioned about floating or, you know, having the water run off very easy with these hair systems, one part is very hydrophobic. And the other part is very hydrophilic. And so that's what allows them to kind of uh, either brush off water easily, as you said, hmm. so eloquently put it, or actually come up to the top of the surface after being submerged. Dang, that is so cool. I, I It's just one of those things that like the closer you get to it, the more interesting it becomes. And, and that's why like people say reductionism sometimes is a negative thing in science, but oftentimes that's where some of the coolest things you learn about an organism are. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And and it's just uh, falling into one specific field and then you just keep going and it take, can take you a long way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, careers can be built off of that kind of stuff. But you mentioned that these can be small colonies of these plants up to covering entire water bodies of these plants. And I had a very uh, rude awakening, I guess, into the invasive potential of some of these plants when I was uh, canoeing in Louisiana. And it was what you described. It was an entire water body where I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is an entire sheet of fern and you would never know there's water under here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that you bring up uh, kayaking. And so when you have sort of these infestations that vary in size, when they get really serious, they can really just disturb the use of waterways. And I think that that's how it really affects the public the most in some mm. ways. They've been going to these these water bodies for a long time and enjoying it with their family. And then over the past maybe 20 years or so, hmm. Salvinia has kind of invaded, at least in the United States, and has caused some disturbance in those those kind of traditions and people enjoying those water bodies, but also, you know, other other detrimental effects to the system. So, Yeah, I mean, it's a, a great illustration, an unfortunately great illustration of just the wide-ranging impacts of invasive species. This goes far beyond just species conservation. I mean, entire cultures and, and livelihoods can rest on how these organisms behave in this system. Yeah. And, and Salvinia definitely has traits that make it a, a great invader <laughs> to, to be able to, to kind of cause those um, disturbances, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so you in particular focus on one species, the giant Salvinia. Uh, is there a reason that one in particular and, and kind of give us some background. Where did it come from? You mentioned the Americas, mm. but uh, you know, how did it get to be the invasive that it is today? So it kind of has a, a really weird story. It was actually thought to be another species uh, within the genus Salvinia auriculata, but during or around 1972, Actually, in uh, Zimbabwe, it was kind of designated as a different species, and it's because it had become so invasive, and they thought that it was this one thing when actually it wasn't. <laughs> and <laughs> and that can be kind of the the helpful side of, of phylogenetics sometimes. But um, <laughs> after it was described, it was thought that it definitely had a morphology that placed it among a group of South American species. Hmm. And so later on, it was discovered that it, it is native to um, southeastern Brazil, actually. Okay. And so it was introduced to the United States. And around 1995, uh, the first population was found in South Carolina, but it was actually successfully eradicated. Whoa. And so we, yeah, one of the <laughs> rare cases. But after that, it was discovered in 1998 in, in Louisiana and Texas. And we think that's where the current invasion comes from. And that just, it's just such a recent invasion, which wow. is pretty wild to me and how far spread it's become in the United States. But 
looking at growth studies of Salvinia and, and kind of looking at how it's become invasive, I would say first it has a really fast growth rate. And um, it's been shown that within two to four days, I believe, it can double its biomass under under Whoa. optimal conditions. Whoa. So it's just a monster. Yeah, it just keeps growing. And um, it's actually been noted as the second worst invasive aquatic species in the world, right behind uh, water hyacinth or icornia. Yikes. Yeah, so I think that's kind of what drew the major focus and attention to it is that it, it's been spreading, introduced to Africa. Australia has a big problem, hmm. uh, South America, and of course, the United States. And so I think the, the fact that it can reproduce so quickly or grow its biomass is, is one thing that makes it such a good invasive. And this kind of ties into two different things. It's a polyploid species. Uh-oh. And yeah, yeah, that <laughs> genome duplication. And so Salvinia molesta is actually an allopentaploid. Huh. And that just means that it's a hybrid. It has two different parental species. It's undergone genome duplication, and it has five copies of the genome. Wow. Which... Yeah, that's that's a lot, a, li- a lot, and a little bit of words, but um, <laughs> essentially, this affects its mode of reproduction. And so, I mentioned the the heterosporia, the heterospory, and while Salvinia molesta does make reproductive structures, it's actually uh, sterile when you consider sexual reproduction, and Whoa. that's because it's a polyploid. Yeah. Okay. And so, there's these failures in meiosis, mostly with chromosome pairing, that cause the sori to either be empty or have inviolable spores. And I've seen this in herbarium specimens where you open up one of hmm. these things and there's just a bunch of black dust. <laughs> Poof. And so, yeah, right. And so we think that it mostly reproduces sexually and vegetatively. So it's just making a bunch of clones of itself. And this is like, if you have a plant and you break it apart at the node, you now have two different individuals that are essentially genetically identical. And this is one of the ways that it can become invasive because it doesn't need necessarily other partners to reproduce with. Uh, Tricky, tricky. And kind of going back to the recency of this. I mean, you generally hear this was introduced in the 40s or something like that, and it took 20 years to hit. But given what you just said, here's a hyper aggressive hybrid that can reproduce it. It stacks up and, and you go, oh, that makes unfortunate sense. Exactly. And so I've been I've been learning a lot about invasive species, but I think when I talk about this, one way to reach some of the younger scientists when I give a talk is mm. is mentioning when it's become invasive. And my professor actually had me ask, and I had to be very respectful because there were some older professors in the crowd. <laughs> but he had me ask, you know, who in here was born after 1998? And that just makes the connection to these students that this is an invasive plant that's invaded the U.S. You know, within your lifetime. Right, right. Because so much of environmental change just kind of happens either so slowly or happened way before any of us were born. And it's hard to put that. You feel it sort of on a academic level, but not on a right. real level. And, and to yeah. have that connection, like, I agree. I mean, I'm already shocked at like, oh, God, you were born in 2000. Like, <laughs> and, and so <laughs> for that much to happen in someone that's like just just now reaching drinking age in the United States is that's heavy. I mean, that's a really great connection to make. And I'm glad you mentioned that because when you're talking about issues like this, that can be often hot button issues or hard to grasp. I mean, those hooks that can connect people on a, on a deeper level is how you really get this information across. Yeah, I would definitely say so. And I think I, I kind of saw some of the interaction with, with the public or maybe, you know, not scientists for a living. 
but being out doing my collections in this mm. in some of the invasive range, you you get to talk to a lot of people who are maybe camping, kayaking, and and they've done their own research about Salvinia because they know it's something that they don't really want around, <laughs> and um, they've done their their own due diligence to kind of look into this. But yeah, I think always finding that connection that can bring people in, especially when you're trying to bring awareness about an invasive species, is yeah. is good. I mean, that's really encouraging to hear because oftentimes it's sort of out of sight, out of mind, or it's pretty, so no one really thinks about it too much, right? Yeah. Like, hello, yeah. Nandina. But, um, you know, this is a, a really good moment to kind of take a step back and go like, oh, no, if given the right information, like people are intrigued. It's not that they're apathetic or even antagonistic. It's just sometimes they don't know. But if it affects their direct interaction with nature, whether that's fishing, kayaking or whatever, I mean, that's a that's an important avenue for learning and understanding. Yeah, and, and I think, there's there's kind of a, a contrast between how this affects people. And so sometimes it's recreational use of the water system mm. that people might be worried about. But other times it can be economical use. And so people are trying to fish in these water systems where they're trying to transport goods across the water with a, mm. a boat or a kayak. And, and this salvinia molesta is just, just in the way. <laughs> Um, yeah, causing all sorts of problems. Yeah, I, I remember thinking this is very thick and very difficult to get through, and I really want to like torch the bottom of my boat when I'm done here because I don't think this is good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I I think uh, definitely trying to prevent the spread is a good thing. <laughs> For sure. Um, but given the conundrum you've just laid in front of us in in good detail here. Where do you fit into this picture? I mean, how do you take your interest and your approach with sort of the molecular side of things to try to understand an invasive species issue? Because I think when people in the common media hear about invasive species, it's it's usually land managers, someone trying to control it, polling events, that sort of stuff. How do you start to unpack this as a scientist? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because my answer is not always what people want to hear <laughs> in, in that regard. Good. Um, but but it, I think it does apply. And so with this research, we're trying to answer some basic but still complicated systematic questions, really. And so mm. we're asking what genomes are in Salvinia molesta is our first question because it is a hybrid, but the, the parentage of this hybrid species is unknown currently. Oh. And so that's one of the questions we're trying to answer. And the second question we're trying to answer is asking, is the introduced range a single genotype, which could certainly be possible. As I mentioned, it reproduces vegetatively or clonally. And so you get a single introduction and then it continues to spread via this mode of reproduction. You have very low genetic diversity mm. within the introduced range. And I think the part that I can apply this to people really being interested in a type of conservation or, or limiting the spread of invasives is being able to control it, um, being able to get rid of it in certain ways. And so we know that there's certain growing conditions for Salvinia molesta. There's been plenty of research that show, you know, what's the best temperatures that it grows at, what's the temperature that it will die at, and things like that. And so relating that to maybe what the genomes are could definitely have an effect. So if you have multiple genotypes, you may know some of the picture about what its growing conditions are and where it can spread to, but being able to test that for maybe different genotypes within the species will really give us a broader knowledge about how this thing is spreading and the evolution of invasive species. That is super exciting. I can't tell you how like I get kind of gets me all amped up to think about like the outcomes of what these are. And, and what really got me excited to talk to you today is you sit in this wonderful place, a rare place in science mm -hmm. where you are bridging this gap between 
theoretical big picture questions and application to the science. And that to me, it needs to be celebrated every time someone's doing it because it is so rare oftentimes in academic circles where you get people that are in the theoretical side and disdain for the applied side and vice versa. It's so refreshing to see someone bridging that gap. And and what you just said there is you, you get to see how you can ask big evolutionary phylogenetic questions and then get an output that can potentially help in the long run with, yeah. with ecosystem management. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, um, I think for me, I had never really thought about it like that, bridging this gap, but I definitely <laughs> get caught on both sides of that where I, I <laughs> fall into trying to think about these big picture questions and then I'm back to thinking about, okay, well, uh, what are some of the more applied things that we can, that we can learn from this and looking at mm. invasive species populations or just Salvinia molesta itself? I, I'm glad you kind of phrased it as sort of get caught in that because yeah, I can imagine some days are easier than others, especially as you're facing you know deadlines and no pressure or anything, but yeah, you know, deliverables and stuff, and and you just gotta stop and think every once in a while as a grad student, like why am I here? What am I trying to do? And just follow that passion, and that's where I think you get really exciting, good scientists out of the process, right? Is is as long as you're following what really drives you, what what gets you excited, gets that fire going in your belly. That's where great things can happen. Yeah, I agree. And it's definitely helped me find kind of my little niche in, in where I want to go next and, and things mm. that I want to explore in plants. And the polyploidy is a part of that, but also just invasive species in general and looking at um, their unique kind of mode of evolution, I guess I would say. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, we've created a, a marvelous natural experiment with invasive species. For better or for worse, we got to study it, right? But Coming back to something you had mentioned a little bit ago with this idea of it's a hybrid, but we don't know who the parents are. That mm-hmm. to me is fascinating because d- d- did you say there's like, what, 12 known species of Salvinia? I mean, yes, correct. Yeah. Give or take. So again, total novice in the realm of genetics. So I apologize that this is a silly question, but if we only have 12, like what is the challenge to understand who the parents are? If you can kind of pull apart the genome and start to look at it. I mean, what, what, what causes some of that confusion or is it just getting the funding to look at all of the 12 individuals? Cause I know sometimes that's the hardest part. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely a, a big task, but I think <laughs> trying to pull this apart, um, our initial data set that we've kind of worked with, uh, did not include all 12 species. Okay. And so looking at some of our initial analysis, we've seen some patterns, but also we don't have the full picture yet. And so one thing that I think has helped my project is not only sampling in the field, mostly getting Salvinia molesta, but also another species, Salvinia minima, Hmm. which is also invasive in the U.S. Very similar. Dang it. But (laughs) yeah, they're a little little, uh, differently separated. But I think including or using herbarium specimens to get samples from all these species because they're spread around the world or or they're in brazil where we can't really travel to uh, currently <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. and it's just a, a little more practical right to um take our barium specimens but sampling from from every species in the genus certainly helps and then trying to ask this question about who the parents are that's where the the genetics come in right. and so we're actually doing um whole chloroplast sequencing or chloroplast genome sequencing and in ferns, it's been shown that the chloroplast genome is directly inherited through maternal transmission. Oh, nice. So that that helps us out in this process. And so <laughs> when we, we get our, our DNA sequences, we get, it, we get our DNA extracted, um, we make these genetic libraries, which is essentially just applying 
unique barcodes to each of our samples. So when we get our sequences back, we know that this sequence came from this species and it has a bunch of data associated with it. So we know kind of what's going on. And then we take this chloroplast data and we're actually using, we're lucky enough to have a reference genome to align to. Nice. And so that also helps us in this process of knowing exactly where to go next and, and how well our data is representing the actual genome. And then we make our phylogenies, the, the hypothesis about these species level relationships. And what we're looking for so far, what we've seen is that Savinia molesta is certainly more closely related to itself than any other species. <laughs> um, but we're hoping to see examining these chloroplast genomes, another species kind of fit in mm. to that little clade. And that would indicate to us that that's the maternal parent at least once, because it's a possibility that the species could have been formed multiple times. <laughs> uh, every time I hear something like that, I just think back to one of my evolution classes where the professor would get so mad that I'd bring up plant examples. He goes, plants do whatever they want. I don't want to talk about <laughs> yeah, it. And, exactly. and you're like, yeah, they do. Kind of <laughs> Like when you can have that much going on to produce this thing, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. oh man, I, I feel for you in a lot of ways. But also, I mean, it is really also cool to hear you've got a great combination, it sounds like, of a lot of field work, field botany, mm -hmm. digging through older barriums, which can be a lot of fun, and then yeah. the molecular side of things. So you're in the lab doing what a lot of people picture as traditional science with a lab coat and bubbly things, right? Oh <laughs> so man, you've yeah. hit the what, trifecta. What people... <laughs> traditionally picture yeah I, I was very upset i think just yesterday my professor had a, a speaker in for seminar and he was describing them what we do in the lab and he was like well more or less we just move fluid between a bunch of tubes and then send them <laughs> off it's like no don't say that stop it stop it it's more complicated exactly. than that. yeah uh, that's fun, though. I mean, so what does field work look like for you? I mean, are you traveling to Texas and Louisiana? I mean, how far do you have to go to find the samples you need to get wild specimens? So uh, our field work, it was a lot of fun. Um, we did travel to, we actually met some collaborators down in Louisiana. Nice. Um, that are working at the University of Louisiana Lafayette, Dr. Brittany Sutherland and Dr. Aaron Siegel. And so we drove down to Louisiana initially. We definitely use Bonap nice. as kind of records to where we could sample from. But then from there, you you just drive to as many fresh freshwater bodies as you can reach <laughs> in a day and you hop out and sample. And it's kind of this conundrum where you get somewhere, especially if it's like a state park, and you really want to find this sample because you spent all the time trying to get there and... <laughs> And then you don't find it and you're like, ah, oh, this invasive species isn't here. <laughs> Where on the other side, you find it and it's like, ah, oh, this place has this invasive species. And so we, uh, we started in Louisiana. We did some southeastern Texas sampling. Mm. And then we also made our way into Arkansas as well. Nice. A good good swath of the United States. Some really awesome spots, I'm sure. <laughs> I feel for you, man. I mean, the... They're like, oh, we definitely need to get this sample. We need to find this. But then you're like, but it's not here. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Dang exactly. it. I'm conflicted. <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> what, what fascinates me too, and again, being a novice to the world of genetics is I just don't know what's possible these days. And, and the fact mm -hmm. that you're looking through herbarium samples and potentially getting useful data out of those now, having seen what Salvinia looks like after about 12 hours outside of the water, I can imagine those samples yeah. are a little crusty, I guess would be a way to describe uh, it. 
definitely a little crusty. <laughs> yeah, the, the hair systems can can present a challenge, especially when trying to extract DNA. That was something we were a little worried about. But also hmm. um, with our barium specimens, the way that you dry them down, trying to get plants dry, and especially one that stays in the water can be a little difficult. But I think this is where I really appreciate people taking voucher specimens. Mm. And so you have the herbarium specimen, you know, that's pressed and you can look at, but then there's sometimes packets that are associated that have tissue that's been dried down specifically for genetic samples. And so nice. I think really the challenge comes in when you're trying to get older specimens yeah. or specimens that just haven't been preserved as well. Uh, the DNA can just be uh, really degraded sometimes. Yeah, I can imagine uh, some of these, it's just too little, too late, or, <laughs> hey, the bugs got in there. Great. Awesome. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, that just goes to show you, and this is something I love to repeat every time it comes up, the importance of herbarium collections, vouchering, mm-hmm. please and, do. and foresight, right? Like, do it properly, yeah. please. Like, that you never know how useful or who is going to find a use for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think just shouting out herbaria in, in general is <laughs> totally. something that we need to do, but especially now, I wouldn't say during my time as a scientist, but before me, this kind of realization of how much data is in mm. an herbaria or in a single herbarium specimen is is just really amazing. And being able to access this genetic information, I mean, I just have a fascination when I look at an herbarium specimen. Sometimes you see the the old cursive writing and the dates, <laughs> and you're like, wow, this is just like a piece of history that I'm looking at. Right. And and yeah, sometimes you have to justify uh, herbaria, but I think that they're they're very valuable resources. Totally. And to think of just the potential, both past and present in there, um, you know, I, another kind of conception I see from a lot of the general public, not botanists, is this idea that everyone's out with their adventure cap on. You know, you do field work, right? And you do make right. awesome new discoveries and, and adventures have, have been had, but like a lot of really important things happen from herbarium specimens like that can't be overstated yeah I, I agree just different connections not only being able to sample broadly geographically that's something that i've been helped with i mentioned the three states that i went to is, is really just a small sample size but mm. we've been able to get samples from california from georgia and from florida so i think that's been one aspect of it but then also kind of the temporal aspect being able to get samples through time and seeing what that looks like for your data. Right, right. And so thinking of the data and like the other side of this, the application of what you're finding, and I realize there's plenty of more work to do. These are early days, so to speak. But, you know, when you think about the applications of these questions you're asking, where do you start to see them, uh, you know, kind of informing invasive species evolution and, and the applied side of that? Hmm. I think there's definitely many, many places you can go, but I, I would start off by saying, I guess, knowing knowing where this thing came from <laughs> and knowing, <laughs> yeah, knowing the parents <laughs> of this species is always a good place to start. But then I think what we're kind of setting up to do is when you get more familiar with a species like this, it opens up a broader network of being able to look at things like how is polyploid affecting the evolution of a species and how is hybridization affecting the mm. ability of an invasive species and answering some of these, well, beginning to look at some of these bigger questions and <laughs> and kind of applying this data to set up bigger experiments, I guess you could say. Right, right. I mean, laying the groundwork, that is huge. Mm-hmm. And going back to sort of the beginning of our conversation about all of the unknowns, especially in a, in a field like botany, ecology, that sort of thing, 
it's it's easy to think we figured it all out in 2022, right? We're done. Pack up, go home. But oh my, <laughs> I can't imagine the Salvinia example that you outlined is unique among the plant kingdom, especially as it relates to invasion biology. Yeah, I really think it's something that I've been able to dig into, and that's kind of what's really just made me happy about working on this project is is working with Salvinia and seeing the different ways that you can take it, um, but also all the things that we just don't know yet about these systems and and how evolution is working or being affected by kind of these changes. Yeah, I mean, talk about, you know, all of the things you think about in an evolution class, like isolation, founder effects, mm-hmm. <laughs> genetic diversity, and, and release from competitive, all of that stuff. Right, right. It's, it's, again, going back to this idea of like this natural experiment that we have unwittingly unleashed upon the landscape and, and trying to understand its effects, but also like, what can we learn from this? I mean, if we're going yeah. to be messing things up like this, what can we learn, right? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's just so many questions that come up. And I think where I've kind of fallen into the rabbit hole is, is looking at polyploidy and, and its relation <laughs> to invasion yeah. or hybridization and its relation to invasion. And I think one thing we can learn from Salvinia is, is uh, being careful about what we introduce <laughs> right. into the wild, either accidentally or on purpose. Right. And uh, sometimes the hobby of having this beautiful plant in your aquatic garden, maybe you need to look into that a little bit more before you go about doing other things. So, Yeah, yeah. And you bring up a really good point. And, and one thing that I always try to drive home here is like thinking about this example in particular for the listeners that many of them probably have aquariums or something to that effect. I mean, there's ways that you can not maybe stop this from happening right now, but the next Mm -hmm. one. Right. And so thinking about how you move stuff around, what, what do you recommend to the listener that wants to avoid spreading it or avoid introducing the next potential Salvinia molesta? (laughs) What would I recommend? Well, I would definitely say, um, I mean, Having an aquatic garden is, is definitely fine and, and pursuing your hobbies is good, but maybe just kind of doing some of your own due diligence mm. and becoming familiar with the things that you have in your aquaria and knowing some of their history at, at the least. And I know that Salvinia molesta, this might not be something people do all the time, but it's been listed as a federal noxious weed mm. um, since before its introduction to the U.S. Whoa. So that that's just one thing, but the, the sad story is that this is a very popular plant. Mm. And sometimes once the momentum has begun, you can't stop it. So I think just kind of being aware yeah, is what I would say. Yeah. Sometimes prevention's the best medicine, right? Yeah. So with that in mind, I mean, you're, you come up a probably against a lot of conundrums as a scientist, because here you are fascinated by the system. You have a ton to learn from it, but you're also seeing the ecological and cultural and economic impacts of this. And so do you struggle personally sometimes with sort of balancing knowing the detriment, but also being fascinated by it? Because you've already kind of spelled it out in such a way for me that I'm like, kind of got to respect it. It's unfortunate yes. and we did it, but it's, you got to respect this plant to some extent. Yeah, it, it definitely keeps me going in this kind of circle of, well, this plant's bad, but it also does some very amazing things and learning how those amazing things are happening is part of the fun of what I do. So (laughs) I really enjoy that aspect of it. And it's hard to find a balance sometimes, but I try my best. Nice. I'm sure some days are easier than others, but yeah, I mean, every situation in this context is nuanced and it is easy to understand why people that are, you know, trying to fight this against in their water body or like on a large scale would have a hatred, but also 
it's okay to admire something for its tenacity too. Again, it's it's not its fault we brought it here. Yeah, definitely. I and I I think some people might have a harder time with that than others. <laughs> sure, and I respect I that agree, too. Yeah. For what it's yeah. worth, I understand it. And so you know, you're early career scientist. You're you're making waves and trying to get some big questions answered, but where do you want to see this going? I, I hate asking like, what's next? Cause that's awful to do to people, but where do you ideally want to see your research go? I mean, are you going to stick with invasion biology and evolution? Are you going to, you know, stick with Salvinia and ferns? Uh, like what do you hope? Yeah. So I, I think I really just appreciate the, the genomic aspect and adding that into kind of an ecological context and seeing how tying genetics together to changes in phenotype, or maybe a shift in an ecological niche is something that really interests me. And then looking at invasive species for sure is another place that's really grown my interest because it's it's a field of study where it's a possibility that there is contemporary evolution happening hmm. or evolution at just a very fast rate. And that really fascinates me, that question. That's so exciting to hear. And I really look forward to seeing everything you put out. I mean, again, that interface between these big questions and the impacts on ecology, stuff that we can go out on the landscape and see today, it, it's, it gets me jazzed. I mean, this is stuff I could geek out about until the day I die and probably hopefully will. So that's awesome. Right, exactly. Yes. But if people yes. want to keep their finger on the pulse of your work and, and just get to enjoy the fruits of your labor and, and everything you're putting out uh, in the future, where do you recommend they go looking? Yeah, so for, for one more semester, I'll be a student on the Beck Lab page, uh, Wichita State University Biological Sciences. I do have an Instagram, stay, at Stacy Holt Jr. And so I think for now, those are probably the two best places for people to keep up with me and see what I'm doing. I have a Twitter and I'm starting to make it more science related, but uh, we haven't got there yet. So <laughs> It's okay. It takes time sometimes and whatever. But uh, yeah, no, that's awesome. I'll save everyone the trouble of having to write that down in the moment and I'll put all those links in the show notes for the episode. But Stacy, this has been awesome. I really commend you on the efforts you're putting in and the questions you're asking and your ability to bridge gaps in science. That is fantastic. But most importantly, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Yes, of course. Thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate it too. I think sometimes I kind of feel like I have trouble uh, definitely believing that I'm a botanist now. And it's just so fun to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I think a lot of people listening, myself included, will mirror that sentiment. It is difficult, but just if you're doing it, call yourself that. It's safe to do because let's be honest, who's really going to challenge you outside of the world of botany? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, that's awesome. Well, hang in there, stay healthy and, and keep up the amazing work. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. You too. Take care. Cheers. All right, that wraps up another amazing conversation. Wasn't Stacy amazing? His passion for science and his ability to ask big questions in a way that can be applicable is just inspiring to say the least, and I think he's got a great future in the sciences. All the relevant information we discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, which is where you should be looking for all of the links associated with each episode. But I thank Stacy for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us about this incredible group of ferns. And you got to hand it to him, as invasive as the giant salvinia can be, it is a plant worth understanding. It has a lot to teach us about a lot of different avenues in ecology, botany, and evolution. Before I let you go, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Laura and Linda. Both of them went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. So they're getting all of the wonderful kickbacks you can get 
by supporting this show each and every month. I literally could not be doing this without the support of my patrons, and I thank each and every one of them. And if a monthly contribution isn't your thing, consider picking up a copy of my book, stickers, or apparel. And all of those links are also in the show notes for each episode. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.